We'll look at the second half of that psalm we were considering last week, Psalm 145, and we'll be reading from verse 8 to the end. Psalm 145, verses 8 to 21. I will extol you, O my God. Sorry, from verse 8. Psalm 145, beginning at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So we're looking at this psalm last week. It's a psalm of praise, and we heard the comment of C.H. Spurgeon, how he reckoned this to be a jewel, and this psalm is all about praising God. It is through and through about praising God. We have nothing of petition, nothing of thanksgiving. It is simply praising God for who he is. We saw last time David praises God for his preeminence. And secondly, God praises David praises God for his power. And this afternoon we begin with verses 8 and 9, where David praises God for his pardoning disposition. His pardoning disposition. We read in verses 8 and 9, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. These attributes of God, the fact of his being gracious, the fact of his being merciful, the fact of his being slow to anger and so forth, highlight the truth that as sinners before him, we all stand in need of his exercising these attributes on our behalf. Each of these attributes we are saying calls attention to the fact that you and I are sinners. We stand in need of his grace, we stand in need of his mercy, and we stand in need of his being slow to anger. The great marvel of the God with whom we have to do is that whereas he's a God of illimitable, infinite power, unbounded power, a God of justice, 
a God of wrath, yet he's at the same time a God of such benevolent attributes. Well, let's look at the various components of God's pardoning disposition toward us as David unfolds them. Number one, he says this, the Lord is gracious. And that he's gracious relates to the fact that he extends to us kindness which we do not deserve. We talk about unmerited, undeserved kindness. And this is the ground this is, uh, on which he saves us according to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. You know that verse very well. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. According to Titus chapter 3 verse it's 3 to 7, we're given, whereas we're once given to a life of sin, the word of God tells us, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, here it comes, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that will be our theme song throughout the ages of glory. The fact that we have been saved by the marvelous grace of God. Second, David states in verses 8 and 9 that the Lord is merciful. And his mercy, God's mercy, concerns his withholding from us, his wrath that we truly deserve. If we think of grace in terms of his giving us what we do not deserve, then his mercy would be his withholding from us that which we truly deserve. He does so out of pitiful regard for us because that's the inherent idea of the word merciful. It is that of compassion in the face of misery. And what a state of misery we were in, lost, wretched, dying, dead in trespasses and sins. And yet God, in mercy and grace, came to where we were and saved us. And this is what David is celebrating. David celebrates the fact that God is gracious, that God is merciful. And then thirdly, he says, the Lord is slow to anger. And this refers to his forbearance, his patience, his long-suffering toward us. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 describes him as follows. He's waiting to be gracious to you as exalting himself to show mercy. The idea here is that he's not quick to fly the handle when it comes to his wrath. In fact, as we often say when we speak of God's wrath, we must not think of it as a sudden flaring up of his anger. The, the wrath of God is something that's constant, is very much a part of his character. He's always wrathful towards sin, and yet the marvel of it, the word of God tells us that at the same time, he is a God who is slow to unleash his anger upon us. In fact, we are told in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, how that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. All of 120 years, God waited and waited and waited. He waited until his wrath was poured out on that generation. In fact, the entire world. The word of God says he abounds in steadfast love. So David praises God for his 
preeminence, he praises God for his power, and he praises God for his pardoning disposition. God is a God of pardoning mercy and grace. And you know, this is a great encouragement to our faith because even as Christians, even though saved, we do slip, we do fall into sin. And here's what the word of God suggests. When we sin, there is provision made for us. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if God were to reckon our sins and deal with them instantly? bringing judgment upon us would have all been what wiped out. But praise God for his pardoning disposition. Now David praises God, fourthly, and I, it would be secondly today, but I'm going in terms of what we covered last week, the fourth thing for which David praises God. In this passage, verses 10 through 13, God, David praises God for what we might describe as his peerless splendor, or if you prefer, his unmatched splendor. First of all, verse 10, here's what he says. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. In other words, all of creation, animate and inanimate, echo grateful acknowledgement to the Lord as their creator. In particular, the psalmist points out here, his redeemed people sound forth his praise. In verses 11 and 12, praise we see there is ascribed to God for the glory, the splendor, and power of his kingdom. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Note those words to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Now, these words we take for granted, but we need to define them if we are to appreciate what's happening here. When we talk of glory, when we talk about God's glory, what do we mean when we speak of God's glory? God's glory essentially, we would say, speaks of his excellence on display. Everything that is excellent about God, and we know God is excellent in his person, everything about him is excellent. His glory is his excellence on display. So when God exercises grace, when God exercises mercy, when God forgives, his glory is on display in these, in these acts. Splendor has to do with magnificence. It has to do with grandeur, it has to do with this idea of majesty, the word power. Power summarizes the deeds of God whereby he's seen to be the true and living God. In scripture, one of the things that characterizes God from the gods of the heathen, which are idols, is the fact that he's a God of power, is the fact that he's a God who acts, the fact that he is a God who makes things happen. For example, by his power, he created the heavens and the earth. By his power, he does this and that. God's power summarizes, the word power summarizes the deeds of God, the acts of God, whereby he is established, he's seen to be none other than the true and living God. Then, of course, you know this very well, the kingdom of God is the sovereign reign and rule of God. And so the point the psalmist is making here in verses 11 and 12 is this, that marked by excellence, majesty, and proven 
acts of God, God's sovereign rule and reign is unmatched. There is no kingdom, no rule, no reign that is like God's rule, that is like God's kingdom. Well, somebody asked the question, well, how can we establish that? Well, it's right here in the text. Notice, first of all, the kingdom of God is peerless in its majesty. It is peerless. It is unmatched in its majesty. Number one, in terms of its duration. It is peerless. God's kingdom, God's power is peerless in that it is unmatched in, its, in terms of its duration. Notice as David adoringly addresses the Lord in verse 30, notice what he says. He says this, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. Knowing as we know that David was king over all Israel, in his time, David would have seen kingdoms come and kingdoms go, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, however mighty, however powerful those kingdoms may have been. We know throughout history there have been kingdoms. We know of the Roman Empire. We know of the British Empire. And the question is today, where are Kingdoms of the past, they are just what they are, relics of the past. Our nation is roughly what? It's roughly what? 17, almost 300 years old. 300. And here's the point. That's pretty young. Many kingdoms have risen. Many kingdoms have fallen. And And the truth, beloved, is this. The sobering truth is no kingdom on earth lasts forever. One of these days, the mightiest kingdom on earth, whatever they are, will come down. Why? Because they're not meant to last forever. And here in verses 10 through 13, David praises the Lord for the fact that the Lord's kingdom supersedes all kingdoms in terms of its eternality, in terms of its duration. Do you know of any other kingdom that has existed from the dawn of human history to this point other than the kingdom of God? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. The truth is only to the Lord, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, can we legitimately ascribe honor and eternal dominion. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16. And the truth that humankind must come to grips with is that one of these days, every human being will come, whether in weal or in woe, whether in wrath or in grace, under the rule and reign of Almighty God. They will stand before him someday, the king of the universe, and they will confess whether or not they want to. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God will see to that. In fact, God has sworn to that effect. He says, "By as I swear, he says that unto me every knee shall bow. Praise God, those of us who are saved, already we have bowed the knee, when, it, when the time comes for his kingdom to be established, when he comes, his second coming, it will be no problem. 
We are already, we have already bowed, we are bowing to that kingdom. But alas, what woe, what sorrow it will be for those who have yet to bow the knee to the lordship and kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, not only is the kingdom of God unmatched in in terms of its duration, but notice it is unmatched in terms of its administration. Look at verse 13c. And verse 13c, as far as I know, and I don't quote me on this, but verse 13c, I think the ESV is one of the few versions that has this part um, affixed in the text. Um, the understanding we have it is found in one Hebrew text, one Hebrew manuscript. It's not and found in majority uh, manuscripts, but it goes as follows. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. I tell you something, even if this is not a part of the original, it still makes sense because it's still packed with truth. And we can, if we are to use this verse, we can say this, that the kingdom of God is unmatched in terms of its administration, the way how the kingdom is ordered. Here's the point. Unlike the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of God is not built on sheer raw power and force. We hear today of totalitarian governments. How are those governments administered? By sheer brute force, raw power. And what we see here suggested in this particular line of verse 13, we could say verse 13c, is this, that the very character of God is that which undergirds and informs his kingdom. His character as expressed in his integrity and benevolence toward his creation. He is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. His being faithful in his word relates to the idea of his covenant faithfulness, the fact that he enters into covenant with us in his word that he gives us. There is nothing of falsity. Everything he says is true. Everything will surely come to pass. And he's kind in all his works. His integrity and benevolence undergirds his kingdom. It is not simply a kingdom of raw power. It is not simply a kingdom of brute force. But it's a kingdom that is established on the very character of God, his integrity and his benevolence. So though he's exalted in the heavens as a sovereign, supreme Lord, here's the point. The wonderful news is this. He relates to us in covenant faithfulness. He communicates with us in personal, loving terms, hence we, his people, praise and adore him. You know, the world has this view of Christianity and the faith that we profess. They talk about our God being not the kind of God that they want to serve. Our God, they say, is cruel. They'll point to Old Testament passages in which God gives a command to kill, say, the Canaanites and all the heathen pagans, people who are worshipping idols, and they say, that is a cruel God. But here's the point. They miss the point. They miss the full picture of God. No, he's not simply a God of sheer raw power, but he's a God of character. He's a God of integrity. He's a God of kind intention toward us, his people. 
And then fifthly, David praises God for his providential oversight. He praises God for his providential oversight, verses 14 through 16, as well as verses 19 and 20. First of all, verse 14. Here's what David says. The Lord opposes all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. God has promised to lift us up when we are discouraged. He has promised to lift us up when we are defeated. He's not the kind of God who gives up on us. He's not the kind of God who shelves us because of our failure. He's not the kind of God who shelves us because we are down in the dumps. When on account of spiritual failure, otherwise we are tempted to throw in the towel, he comes alongside us and what does he do? He upholds us, he strengthens us by his grace, he renews us. And we have illustrations of that in scripture. Jonah who deserved what he got. You remember there came a time after he had done what God had told him to do. Of course, he learned the hard way. And then afterwards, he was there pouting. God came to him. And God spoke tenderly to him. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And God reasoned with him. Elijah was down in the dumps. And God came to him. No, he didn't rebuke him, tell him, you know, saying, you know, get up, get up, Elijah, get going. You are a man of God. You, as my servant, you should be uh, strong and you should not ever be discouraged. No, no, no. He came to him. And what did he do to Elijah? The first thing he did, the angel of the Lord did, gave him bread and water and added something sweet, gave him figs. And we are told Elijah got up and he went in the strength of that food. For 40 days. God in grace, whenever we are down, whenever we are discouraged, he provides for us spiritual fortitude to move on, to get up, to move on. And this he does personally as a God of grace and comfort. Second Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Paul knew the reality of God's comfort, of God's providential care. He says, to the Corinthian Christians, he says, Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant of the great trouble that came upon us. We were so pressed in spirit that we despaired even of life. But he says, God comforts us in our tribulation. He is the God of mercies and the God of all comfort. And God comforts us personally by his Holy Spirit, but he also comforts us Oppose us through the ministry of our fellow believers in Christ. Second Corinthians 7, 5 through 7. But God who comforts us, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul testified in those verses. He's always there to forgive us, to lift us up when we stumble, thereby keeping us from being utterly defeated. He ever stands ready to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hence, as Psalm 37, 23, 24 assures, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Can I suggest this to you? May I suggest this to you? Your standing as a Christian, my standing as a Christian, your being in that position where you're presently walking with him. In fact, may I suggest this? You're being here this afternoon and you're being holding to the faith 
is not of your doing. It's not of my doing. It is through the sustaining grace of God. God in his providence, he provides all the means for us to be established in his ways. And continuing with praise of the Lord for his providential care, David, you know what this continues in verses 15 and 16, he says this, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And here David praises God for his open benevolent hand in providing for and satisfying the needs of his creatures. We are living at a time where we are, as we listen to the news, what are we hearing? Food shortages are coming, food shortages are coming, food shortages are coming. People begin to get discouraged. But let me say this, we can bank on the fact that even if food shortages come, even if harsh, difficult, stringent time comes, God will find a way to preserve and to provide for us. In these verses, he calls attention to the truth, David calls attention to the truth that all of creation is utterly dependent on God for sustenance. And this goodness of God, he says in verse 9, extends to all. We read, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Indeed, our Lord Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, that God the Father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What mercy and grace he bestows even to the wicked, even to the unrighteous. All this highlights the need for us to trust him. All this highlights the need for us to cease worrying, to cease fretting about our future, knowing that as the one who providentially cares for us, he's very much, God is very much aware of our needs and is pledged to supplying our needs. That is why our Lord Jesus could say in Matthew chapter 6, 31 through 34, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Verse 33, what are we supposed to do then? He says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We need to thank God. We need to recognize, first of all, God's providential care, God's providential activity in our lives. God is the one who enables us to find food each day. God is the one who equips us with jobs. God is the one who sustains our health. He's actively involved in our lives as the God of providence. And sometimes we might look in our lives and we might say, well, there's nothing really to praise God for. I can hardly see anything. Here's the point. If you look long enough, you will find more than enough reasons to praise him. The very breath we breathe attests to his providential care of 
our lives. And this, of course, has tremendous implications for eternal well-being because if God, as the God of providence, can care for us materially, can care for us physically, then how much more will he care for us eternally? The fact is, those of us who are saved can have the confidence that the Lord will continually keep us until that day he ushers us into his presence. As we are so wonderfully reminded in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, we are kept by God's power, guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What, of, what all of this means is that we can have confidence in the eternal salvation provided us by our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does David praise God for? He praises God for his preeminence. He praises God for his power. He praises God for his pardoning grace. He praises God for his peerless splendor. He praises God for his protective oversight. And then seventhly, David praises God for his pervading presence. He praises God for his pervading presence. Look at verses 18 and 9. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. He hears their cry and saves them. What is David praising God for here? He's praising God for his near presence in the lives of his people. And when we talk about his pervasive presence, what are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that every area of our lives, God is actively involved with every area of our lives. He cites the promise they enjoy by virtue of God's nearness, that is the people of God, and that is God hears and answers their prayers. I'm sure most, if not all of us at some point or another, have sensed God being distant. Even as we pray, we sense that our prayer prayers are really reaching no further than the ceiling. And yet here we are given the assurance that he's a God who is always near at hand, listening to us as we pray to him. His presence pervades our lives. He's on all sides, we are surrounded by his presence. Think, for example, of how Scripture illustrates this, how Scripture makes this point of God's pervading presence in our lives. Scripture assuredly affirms us, for example, that he is before us. He is before us. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 2 and 3 speaks of God going before us. He is behind us, according to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. He is beside us, according to Psalm 23, verse 4. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is beneath us, Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He is within us, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. For his Holy Spirit dwells in us, abides in us. Yes, he abides in us forever. And here's the point. He's right to the right side of us, Psalm 16, verse 8. 
Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be greatly moved. Of course, we must not take this literally to say, well, he's at our right hand. But it is a way of saying that God is very much active in our lives in terms of his being ever present with us. But notice the caveats to this promise of God's nearness that David speaks of. This promise holds true, David tells us, only for those who meet certain conditions. Notice in verse 18 that the promise holds true, the promise of God's nearness holds true, not simply on the grounds that we call on him, but that we do so how? In truth. That is, in sincerity, with transparency, with honesty, with openness, of heart. It is, it is near those who call upon him, yes, but those who call upon him in truth. Among other things, what this means is that in praying to him, we do not use vain, empty, meaningless words as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, knowing that we are not heard for much speaking. When we, when we pray words that do not resonate with the feelings and intents of our hearts, we are not praying sincerely. It would mean that in praying, we're not doing so to create an impression on others. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. We are praying, as it were, locked in with God who hears in secret and sees the very motives and intents of our hearts. Those to whom God draws near as they pray are those who are solely and seriously engaged with him, calling on him in truth. The second promise of God's nearness, the second promise of God's nearness to those who call on him holds true. One condition is that they fear him. So not only must we call on him in truth, but we must fear him. We see that in the A part of verse 19, he fulfills the desires of those who what, fear him, those who reverence him. And so as we think of these points of praise, as we seek to apply them to our lives, we, like David, we could say, should praise God for his preeminence. In other words, for his sovereignty. God is a God above all gods. He's Lord of lords. He's King of kings. And hence, he's to be praised for his preeminence. We're to praise him for his power because by his deeds, by his acts, in creation, his acts in human history, more so his acts of salvation in our lives attest to the fact that he, as the God of power, is indeed the living God. We should praise him for his pardoning grace. Every day we stand in need of God's pardoning mercy and grace. And praise God, it's available. We should praise him for his peerless splendor. There's none like him. His kingdom is matchless. His kingdom, there's none like it. His kingdom is matchless in its duration. It is eternal. It's matchless in its administration because it's built on the very character of God. It's built on his integrity. It's built on his benevolence. And then we should praise God for his protective oversight, his providential activity in our lives. We should praise him for his pervading presence in our lives. The fact that he is near to us when we call on him 
when we fear him. May God bless these truths to our hearts. And may we consider, may we thank him, praise him more so for the fact that in the person of Christ, he has come near to us, in fact much nearer than he could ever come on this side eternity. And for that we ought to be thankful.